We know we need God all the time, but there are some weeks that remind us of that more clearly than others, and it seems like in the life of our nation, this has been one of those weeks. Uh, bombs you know, sent to various leaders, uh, shooting in a synagogue yesterday, uh, shooting in Louisville earlier in the week in a grocery store, and we really need the mercy of God for us and for our country. Let's go to God together now in prayer. God, we thank you that you are worthy of our praise and that you are high and lifted up and exalted and yet you have come near to us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, but also that you are our heavenly father. God, we thank you that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God and we know that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. So God, we ask that you would intervene uh, in our life as a church. We ask that you would be merciful uh, to our country. God, we ask that you would give us strength in our fight against sin individually and as a congregation. We also think of those in particular who are battling physical illness or upcoming surgeries. God, Uh, Thank you for answering our prayers for Paul Walker, and I ask that you would please continue to heal his body following his surgery for a pacemaker this week. Please uh, heal uh, Jim Sherrard as well, God, as he's torn his calf muscle. We think of our brother and sister, uh, Troy and Sally Evett. God, give them strength and encouragement as they uh, deal with the reality that we live in a fallen, broken world. We think of Hal Bolin as he has surgery tomorrow. God, I pray that you'll guide the doctor's hands and and give them wisdom. Thank you for our brothers and sisters at East Cooper Baptist Church. I pray that you will help them equip people to pursue Jesus Christ passionately, and that this would enable them to impact the culture of our community. For Pastor Buster Brown, God, I pray that you will encourage him in his ministry, that the gospel would be clear in his preaching and in his life. We think of Mark Sanford, a congressman, God, that he would lead wisely, help him to uh, legislate and write laws that will impact this world uh, for the next world. We ask this morning for the Rohingya people of Myanmar, many of them uh, destitute, uh, driven out of their homes and in refugee camps. God, I pray that you would be merciful to them, uh, provide for them physically, but most of all, help them see their need for Jesus, the Savior. We thank you for our sister, Mary Blitch. God, I thank you that she's able to be back here among us this morning. I pray that you will uh, encourage her, give her strength physically, but most of all, encourage her in her walk with Christ, that he would be sweet to her. God, help her to know what it means to be at perfect peace because you keep those in perfect peace whose minds are stayed on you. And I ask for our congregation that you would help us walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling in Christ with humility and gentleness, with patience, that we would learn to bear with one another in love and that we would eagerly strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And as we come to your word, God, make us salt and light that shine brightly. Give us a sense of the goodness and trustworthiness of your word and help us see that it is impossible for our righteousness to ever earn your favor, but that Jesus is our only hope. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 will be in verses 13 through 20 today of this chapter. 
As we walk through this text, we'll see that only God is good enough to save sinners. Only God can be good enough to save sinners. I'll begin reading in Matthew 5.13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, not an iota, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, we're jumping into the next section of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we looked at the Beatitudes, which which essentially are the uh, character qualities of those who are members of this kingdom. What do they look like? We're moving into kind of a second section today, which is, what is the mission for citizens of this heavenly kingdom? In other words, what is our mission as God's people, as members of this kingdom? What is our mission? And the first thing we're going to see as we walk through this this morning is the importance of witness, the importance of our witness as God's people in verses 13 through 16. Jesus is a master of illustration, and in verses 13 and 15, he uses two pictures to help us understand what he's talking about here. And he's making the same point with both pictures, and that is about the transforming power of the gospel. In other words, God takes the gospel, he places it in our hearts, and it transforms us from the inside out in a way that changes the way we interact and encounter the world around us. The language that Jesus uses here is strong, it's emphatic. You are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. He's, he's pointedly talking to this group of people right in front of him. Well, we're in a time of our family life where the presence of salt on a table is a very exciting thing because it's an object that can be encountered, used, and even applied during a meal. Now, one thing, if you have kids our age, you know it's not really safe for them, it's not really good for them to put their own salt on their own food. Why? Because they enjoy the shaking of the salt more than the taste of the salt. So they'll, you know, they'll dump out salt without any regard for how much they're putting on their plate. This is because salt does what? It, it flavors food. So we might add salt or other spices to food. And we're pretty familiar with with that aspect of salt. But there's another way that salt interacts with things that we aren't quite as familiar with, although in some aspects we encounter it. And that's that salt also purifies or preserves food. Uh, In the last week, I was visiting with some folks. I was the only person in the room, I think, who was under the age of 90. Well, it's safe to say that their experience of the world has been rather different from my experience in the world. And as we were talking there, we weren't remembering, you know, kind of when the first refrigerators came with drink, you know, water, or ice dispensers in the doors. We weren't even remembering the first refrigerators or freezers. In that room, we were remembering the time before there were ice boxes. This wasn't 
iceboxes, it was pre-icebox. And remembering things like uh, putting the milk down the well on a string to keep the milk cool in, in, the, in the cool water of the well. Well, as we're talking about this today, we live in a world where we can pretty much, as long as the power grid stays up, we can pretty much keep anything cool and fresh. But that hasn't always been true. And in the first century, the way you would preserve meat often or other items was to add a lot of salt to it. Salt was a preservative. It allowed it to last a long time or it purified. It would work out the impurities of that substance. Well, another thing that's a little bit different for us today is that when we buy salt, we accept expect what's in the container to just be salt. So we go, and if it says sea salt or iodized salt or something like that, it's just salt in that container. It's gone through a a refining process, and we know what's in there. But in the first century, it didn't work quite that way. They would dig salt out of the ground, and it would come mixed with other substances, other minerals. So you might have a bag of salt that that is pretty purely salt, or you might have another container of salt, and it's mixed with all these other substances. And so what could happen is that over time, if it sat too long, the salt could sort of leach out of that, that, that bag of minerals, and you'd be left with essentially sand. Now, if you add salt to food, it might do good, but if you add sand to food, it makes it taste a whole lot worse. I mean, you know this, you live at the beach. You know, our little guy might pick up a handful of sand and put it in his mouth. That ain't helping his lunch taste better. That's just not the way it works. And so what we have here is these people's understanding of salt is that it, it purifies, it flavors, and it preserves. But if the salt leaches out of the bag, what's left, Jesus says, is no longer good for anything. Literally, that word good is competent. The salt isn't competent to salt. It's not good anymore. It's not salty anymore. You can't take sand and make it salt. Well, then Jesus uses a second picture here, and he says that you are the light of the world. Now, he's talking here about a particular light, and because, you know, we don't have enough lights in this room, I brought a special light with me. Now, this is bright enough that I don't think it'll blind you too much, but you can see what it is here. Now, Jesus says what happens is if you have a light or a candle, what ha- you don't place it under uh, a, a, a bushel or a bowl. In fact, when I, I don't know if you guys still sing this song, but when I was a kid, we'd sing, hide it under a bushel. No! You know, this little light of mine. That was a song we sang when I was a kid. Well, the point is this, this bowl is a bushel bowl. It was used essentially to measure grain in. It was a household item. Well, if you had a light, you wouldn't bury it under the bowl. What Jesus says is, no, you hang it from uh, a lampstand. You put it in the highest possible point. Why? Because then the light kind of falls, and he says then it gives light to everyone in the house. So the point is, if you want light, you want it in the place where it'll give the highest amount of light to the greatest number of people in the greatest spot possible. Well, this isn't the only time where we need to see the description as someone as the light of the world. In John 8, Jesus is teaching there as well. So here in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the light of the world. Well, in John 8, what does he say? He says, I am the light of the world. And I think there's a neat connection here for us in scripture, which is like this. It works a little bit like the sun and the moon. The moon by itself doesn't give light. It reflects light. The sun is the source of light, and so the sun is essentially where all light comes from, and yet the moon also has this light-giving role. And in the same way, Jesus is the great light, the source of light, and God's people reflect this light, and when you put a lot of little lights together, you get a brighter light. And so the assembled people of God, this is one reason that churches are, so, are such a bright witness to the gospel, is that the gathered people of God shine brightly, more brightly than we can on our own. Well, if you put all this light together, you get this bright light. If you put salt together, you get this, this flavoring. Well, what does salt do? It salts, 
<laughs> right? I mean, it acts like salt. Well, what does light do? Light lights or light shines. Well, in the same way, Christians, Christian. Christians act Christian. Now, there is this shining, shining aspect. Jesus says, let your light shine. But there's also this kind of by definition. So salt, by definition, is salty. You don't have to tell salt to taste salty. Light, by definition, will shine. You don't have to tell light to shine. It is what it does. And in the same way, Christians have a way they interact with the world. Now, Christians' Christianing isn't quite, you know, it doesn't quite connect one-to-one, but maybe Paul will help us understand a little bit more. So Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace. So in other words, people saved by grace interact graciously. We grace the world with our presence in the way that we interact with it. Christians live graciously. So what's the point of all this? Verse 16, let your light shine so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, the little light isn't the point. The big light is the point. The Son is the point. The Father, the source of all light, He is the point. We act as little lights pointing people, reflecting the character of the big light, of the Father who is in heaven. Now, if you were to read a little bit further through the Sermon on the Mount, you'd come to Matthew chapter 6. And there, Jesus teaches something that sounds the exact opposite of what he says here. He says, don't practice your righteousness to be seen by others. And then he uses this illustration of this man who goes out and he stands on the, pre- on the street corner so that everyone can see him praying. Or people that go and they make sure they drop a lot of coins into the offering place so everyone hears them, bing, giving their money so that people know. And he says, don't be like that because those people practice their righteousness to be seen of men. Now here he says, do your good works so that people may see. And there he says, don't do your good works so that people may see. Well, what's the point? The point is that there is one group practicing good works so that people will look at them. And then there's another group doing some of those very same good works so that people won't look at them, but so that they will see the character of our Father. In other words, it's like this. We're not paintings, we're windows. What's a painting for? A painting is to be seen, to be looked at. You don't look through a painting, you look at the painting. But a window, on the other hand, is, is a lens. It's something, it's something that you look through, and if, if you mix up the point of it and you're staring at the window, then all you'll notice is all the spots on the windows. Like sometimes you notice all the flaws in the people around you, but we, what we are to be is lenses through which people can more clearly see the character of God. Or it might be a little bit like this, this magnifying glass that I brought with me. Now, magnifying glasses, you know, maybe you use them as decorative objects, you know, if you like it sitting out on the desk. But the primary purpose of a magnifying glass is to enlarge what you're looking at. It's to magnify what's being seen through the lens. And in the same way, we exist as lenses through which we can clarify the character and nature of our Heavenly Father. So, People understand and interact with the character of God today primarily by interacting with people who are supposed to reflect God's character. Why is it that people don't understand the character of God at some level? It's often because we aren't accurately reflecting his gracious character. Sometimes the reason people reject Christianity is because of the way Christians interact with others. We are lenses through which people should see the character of God. Well, this sort of raises the stakes on how we interact with others, doesn't it? 
Because it's not just about our reputation. It's not just about the reputation of a local church. It's actually about how people encounter and see the character of God himself. And sometimes the most heartbreaking thing is when the people who are closest to us reject the God that we love. But as we live and encounter people, the truth is that they encounter God's character through our lives. Sometimes we might think, you know, the church does our kids good, but it's not for us. But the truth is that, that we must all be committed disciples of Jesus Christ. I mean, this kind of light shining starts at home. In other words, if people are going to encounter the character of God, they're going to encounter it often through the lives of mom and dad. Or in your case, it might be grandma and grandpa. And the question for us is, if we look at the weight of our words, the weight of our lives, what kind of character are we revealing? What kind of lens are we showing? What are we pointing people toward? We move from our witness to the reliability of the word of God itself, verses 17 through 19. Well, the Jews are experts in Old Testament law. And by the time we get to the first century, they have broken it down in every way possible. Now, I don't know if we have any uh, sports fans in here, but if we do, this will connect with you a little bit. Over the last decade or so, the way professional sports are played has changed quite a bit. Uh, In fact, if you're watching the World Series or if you stayed up for all seven hours and 20 minutes of game three or whatever it was, it ended up like, you know, three or four in the morning. It was a little bit ridiculous. But what happens is the way that batters are chosen changes. So now, oftentimes, if there's a left-handed batter, you'll see a left-handed pitcher because it's harder for left-handers to get a hit off a left-handed pitcher or right-handers off of a right-handed pitcher. And so people understand this and they've made this, this study of this. They call it analytics. And so it's hit every sport. I mean, it's hit... Uh, golf, football, baseball, basketball, soccer, they're using it, and it really is kind of changing, revolutionizing the way sports interact. And so now you can be a nerd and get a job in, in, a, in a front office somewhere. This, uh, so there's a whole new world open, open to you. Well, the, uh, the, the group here have, have really made, they've kind of done analytics on the Bible itself. So by this time, the scribes and Pharisees have broken uh, the law down, and they figured out that there are 613 commandments in the law. Of these, 248 are positive and some 365 negative. So the good news is there's a negative command for every single day of the year. I mean, they have broken it all down. And they've, they've not only figured out that there are 600 plus of these laws, they've turned them every which way. And so they've had these debates about how this law applies and whether it matters on this day or that day of the year. Well, one thing that a close study of these 600 plus commandments will do is show you that it is impossible for you to keep all of these commandments. You cannot do it. I mean, let's take the 10 commandments. Can you keep 10? Now, you can't keep 10, let alone 600 commands. Yet Jesus says something remarkable in verse 17. I have not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm coming and I will keep the law perfectly in a way that no other human being ever has or ever could. Well, why is it so necessary to keep the law this way? It's necessary to keep the law perfectly because the law itself, God's word is perfect. Verse 18, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, this word iota is literally seraph. Well, if you own a computer or typewriter or word processor of any sort, you'd likely have on there serif fonts 
in sans serif fonts. Now, you're about to get a Latin lesson. It is free. There is no charge for this, but I think it'll help us understand what we're looking at today. What you have here on the screen is two versions of the letter F. On the left is a serif version of the letter F. On the right is sans serif. Serif is just these little tails. It's what all the, the red circles there are that shows you that's a serif. The other side, sans serif, means without serif, without the tail. And what God says is there's not a single tail of one letter that will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. In other words, the very smallest parts, the little components, the little uh, parts of one letter, all of those will be fulfilled. There's not one of them that will pass away until all is accomplished. God's word is utterly perfect. It's utterly trustworthy. There's not one part of it that will be lost. God's word will stand forever until heaven and earth pass away. Not one iota, not a dot will pass from the word of God. It's the most emphatic negative possible. When he says not one dot, it means there's not any way in the world that one part of this will fail to come true. Well, we live in a world where authority is kind of a bad word. But the truth is, there is an ultimate authority. He has spoken, and he has revealed his will to us in his word. I mean, we've got hard copies of the word. We've got e-copies of the word. We've got audible copies of the word. We've got visualized copies of the word. I mean, we have access to the word. God's word reveals to us the mind of God himself, and yet we so often find ourselves committed to other things, don't we? And, and I don't want to just get into, well, that's the pastor's job to scold God's people for not reading God's word, but let me, let, me, let me just say this. This is harder for me than it's ever been. I mean, our lives are more distraction-filled than they've ever been. It used to be that an 8-to-5 job was an 8-to-5 job. It ain't that way anymore. An 8-to-5 job is an 8-to-8 or an 8-to-9 or an 8-to-11 job, and you carry it with you in your pocket, and there's access to you at all times. You know, it used to be that people could expect to call your home or your office. Now, if you don't answer a text within three, minute, text within three minutes, you aren't keeping up the way you ought to be keeping up. I mean, there's email, there's social media, and there's a new social media next month for the one that doesn't exist this month. I mean, it's distraction-filled all the time. And brothers and sisters, the battle is that we must devote ourselves to the Word. We have to discipline ourselves to be in the Word. And, and it's not just for us, it's for our families, it's for our congregation. I mean, often the thing that requires the most energy, that for whatever reason, and honestly, probably some of it is because it's spiritual warfare, but sometimes the hardest thing to do is sit down and read the Bible and pray with my family. That is a hard thing. That requires effort and discipline. I get home at the end of the day, and the last thing I want to do is try to take a bunch of kids that don't want to sit down and listen and, and try to make them listen for a few more minutes. You know, no one is there applauding me. No one is there patting me on the back. There's no inspiring emotional music. There are no tears uh, dripping down anyone's face. It's just a hard slog. And in fact, sometimes it's like this. Like this week, we were reading, and we were reading this passage, and I said, what kingdom is Jesus talking about? And, uh, and one, I won't even tell you, but you can figure it out on your own. One, one daughter answered the kingdom of... And then one other raised her hand. I said, hang on, let's let her in. And she heard the H, and so she wasn't really paying attention. He said, she said the kingdom of hand. I was like, no, it ain't hand. It's heaven, the kingdom of heaven. You know, she just, she just thought of any H word that came to her mind. And sometimes that's what it's like. It's not inspiring, but brothers and sisters, the word is worth it. God has spoken to us. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And if we are going to reflect the character of God, we must know his word. And dads, we can't leave this to mom. Often moms have this heart for their children. But God calls fathers to lead their families this way. Don't, don't just push this off on mom. Own it. Own our responsibility to, men that love the, to be men that love the Lord with all our heart. To be men that teach our children to love the Lord with all of their hearts. 
There are no warm fuzzies in this, but brothers and sisters, the end is worth it because it's about knowing God and making him known to our children. A few centuries ago, uh, an English pastor named John Bunyan was alive. You may know John Bunyan or you may not, but you probably have heard of his most famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. Well, he lived several centuries ago, and then a couple centuries ago, another English pastor lived, Charles Spurgeon. So you've got an older English pastor, John Bunyan, and then you have a kind of old English pastor, Charles Spurgeon. But one day, Charles Spurgeon is teaching his congregation about John Bunyan and encouraging them to read this book, Pilgrim's Progress. And Spurgeon says this about John Bunyan, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. I mean, how would it change our lives? How would it change our families if you cut us and the Bible begins to bleed out? When you poke me or prick me and what's tempting, it's tempting for my selfishness to come out or my pride or my defensiveness or my impatience. And yet, if the Bible changes us from the inside out and you prick us, how would it change us if the love, grace, and peace of God our Father became bleeding out of God's people when you cut us instead of our defensiveness, our desire to protect our own name or protect our own territory? Let's be men, women, and children who love the Word, who know the Word. Let's devote ourselves to the Word in our worship. Let's devote ourselves to the Word in our homes because God's Word is completely reliable. But not only this, God's word has impossibly high standards. It's impossible for us to be truly good. And Jesus makes this point in verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees are two well-known groups in the first century, and really we'll encounter them quite a few times in the life of Christ. But they're, they're similar groups, but not identical. They're both es- experts in some things as they relate to the law. So the scribes are essentially legal scholars. They're experts in interpreting the law of God. So they can tell you in each of these 600 commands, they can interpret them perfectly. The Pharisees are similar, but they're a little bit different in that they're experts in actually keeping the law. They make the, 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 the devotion, the, the, the whole purpose of their life, that of keeping the law. So you've got experts in interpreting it, experts in keeping it. Now there's some crossover. Sometimes scribes are Pharisees and Pharisees are scribes, but they're actually somewhat distinct groups. In other words, these are the pastors, deacons, leaders, evangelists, prophets. These are the preeminent people. They're the people that uh, at church anniversaries are honored. They're the people that at, that at banquets are held up as examples. And what Jesus says is that these people who have amazing religious devotion, if you are not better than they are, you have no shot at getting to heaven. I mean, if you keep reading through the book of Matthew, you come to Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus tells us that these people are so devoted to God that not only do they tithe out of their resources, they go to their spice cabinet and tithe out of their spices. They give a tithe of their mint, their cumin, and their dill. I mean, they go hunting. They are letter of the law, rule keepers. They have kept every law possible. But Jesus says, we have to be more righteous than they are. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, he kind of takes that standard and he sets it even higher. If you would enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what he says is you have to be more righteous than the most righteous human beings. In fact, you have to be infinitely, perfectly, holy, righteous, good, and just as God is perfect. But the problem here is that the scribes and Pharisees misunderstand the nature of true righteousness. 
They're in the forest, but they lose sight of the forest because they're staring so hard at the lichen, the bark, the leaves on one tree. They, they lose sight of where they are. In other words, they focus on the legal nature of the law. What is the exact letter of the law while losing the idea that the focus of God's character, the focus of the gospel itself is the law, the rule of love. The righteousness that God requires isn't ultimately something that can be earned. Romans 1 teaches us this, that the righteousness that God requires comes to us by faith. Righteousness comes by faith. In other words, God requires this perfect ultimate standard of righteousness. There is not a single human being who can earn or meet this standard of righteousness. There's not a one, not the most holy, not the most righteous scribe or Pharisee, not the best, not the most faithful church member. You cannot meet this standard of righteousness. And yet Romans 1 teaches that God gives this to us by faith. The, The technical theological word is that he imputes this to us. Here's this righteousness that doesn't belong to us, and yet he gives it to us. He credits it to us, even though it is not ours, even though it is unearned. So let's go back for a minute to point two, the reliability of the word. Not one dot will pass away. This is amazing news about the reliability of God's word. At the same time, it's important to me that not only does this Not only does this mean that God's word is reliable, it also means that there's not one of God's expectations that will go unfulfilled. God requires perfection. We don't get to pick and choose which of God's expectations he really meets. This is difficult because we all like to live in a world where where at some level we can craft God's expectations according to our own. But what God's word teaches is that the law is a unified whole. So James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point is guilty of all. Now, at one level, this doesn't make sense, but, but because God is one, God's character is one, God is whole, his law is a perfect revelation of who he is. And it's like a chain. It doesn't matter if I break the second or the 202nd link, link in a chain. I've broken the chain, and the law works like that too. To break one law of God is to break all of God, the whole of God's law. Now, we can sit here this morning, and we, we probably at some level can all agree that when the Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder, that God means you shouldn't murder. So I doubt we have anyone sitting here, perhaps we do, hopefully not, who's a serial killer. But we can at some level, we can at some level agree God didn't intend for us to interact this way and, and, and take that commandment seriously, but... But what about when God says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain? Now, this is one that, you know, we kind of say we can set that one aside sometimes if the occasion calls for it or if, if there's some reason that I, that I need to do this. And yet, the, the third commandment about our words, taking God's name in vain, and, and the sixth commandment, they're, they're part of the same law. And, and what happens is we craft expectations based on our set of, you know, expectations. So culturally speaking, murder is not okay, but taking God's name in vain is okay, and so we'll do one, but we won't do the other. And what happens is we have now crafted kind of our own set of rules and our own set of commandments. Or let's take that one, because even if we do it, sometimes we can at least say, I I shouldn't do it. What about loving God with our whole heart? I mean, the first commandment, to love God with your whole heart. But we all get that sometimes we don't do that perfectly, and and we can kind of set that to the side, right? I mean, God gets that sometimes we'll love something else. 
Well, the good news is that God's word is completely true, so you can trust it. But the bad news is that its demands must be kept. Verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this description of righteousness exceeding, it's not like just getting over the bar. It's a word that means far exceeding their righteousness. It means above, way above and beyond. And then the same thing, you will never enter. It's the strongest possible negative. In other words, unless your righteousness absolutely blows the lid off the most righteous people, you will never, ever, ever, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are strong words. Well, what's the point here? The point is that God is looking for a standard of righteousness that's far beyond anything that we could actually do. So, friends, if you're sitting here and you don't tithe out of your spice cabinet, you ain't getting to heaven on your own. I mean, these are strong words. Recently had a conversation with someone about asking how they come to know the Lord or became a Christian, and they said something along the lines of, I've always been a pretty good person. But Romans 3 says that no one does good. No one understands in Proverbs 20, verse 6 says that we all, every man loves to proclaim his own goodness. And isn't this true? We all love to think of ourselves generally as good people. We evaluate ourselves according to our expectations, but this never truly works. Uh, when I was growing up and, uh, and I wanted to learn, to, I wanted to mow the lawn. Now, first of all, my dad told me when I was little, as long as you want to mow the lawn, you're probably too young to be mowing the lawn. <laughs> so there came a time when I didn't want to mow it, and then he made me mow it. Well, I can remember uh, the first time I was mowing the lawn, like my goal was just to make sure that at the end of it, that there were no pieces of grass sticking up any higher than the other pieces of grass. And so I didn't, you know, really track where they were. I just kind of like, I would chase them down. And I can remember my dad saying, no, 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 this isn't how we mow the lawn. We mow the lawn in straight lines in alternating directions so it looks nice when we're done. We don't want it to look like, you know, someone came in here and had, you know, willy-nilly just ran over the lawn. See, in other words, my standard of mowing the lawn was just getting it done, and my dad had this standard of, like, let's get it done right. And in an infinitely greater way, the question for us today isn't whether we can meet our standards of mowing the lawn. It's whether we can meet God's standards for our righteousness. And the truth is that we can't. There's not a single person who can. Our only hope of meeting God's expectations is if God himself meets them for us. Isaiah 59 says that God looked for someone to deliver his people. He looked for a man to stand in that gap, and there was none. And yet God's word tells us that then his own arm provided salvation. In other words, God looked for a human being who could keep God's law, and there was none. And when God saw that, because God is a merciful, gracious, loving God, God himself provided the answer to his, his search. He himself kept the law for us. And this is what Jesus does. He stands in the gap for us. But if we come thinking that, church attendance or living a relatively good life or any list of good things that we've done that we are defining, then God cannot help us. God realizes, God helps those who realize that they are hopeless apart from him. So let's just pause and consider for a moment. Don't don't assume, but just pause and ask yourself, what is your hope in? Are you hoping in some measure of goodness that you have? some measure of faithfulness that God will reward, or is your help in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone? He is our only hope. And if you are here this morning, depending on some sense of self-reliance, would you turn from your sin of pride and self-reliance and trust Jesus alone to save you? 
As we close, let's look at one important connection in the text. Look at verse 16. People see our good works and give praise to God. Verse 20, our good works are never enough to earn heaven. So for us, good works aren't about earning heaven. They're actually about revealing the God who has saved us. In other words, good works are important, but they aren't about earning God's favor. They're because God has given us grace. We reflect the gracious character of God. I mean, if your kids are succeeding and flourishing in life, how does that make you feel as a parent? Feel pretty good. It might even make you look good. And in the same way, God is who he is, but we're to reflect the character of God to the world around us. We do good works because we're God's children, not to become God's children. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk to God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to God now. God, we thank you that you are a God who not only is perfectly righteous and demands perfect righteousness, but graciously and mercifully meets that standard for us. God, I pray for anyone here who does not know Jesus by faith, that you would open their eyes, that they would see their need of him. And God, I pray for us as families that we would be people who are committed and devoted to your word, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have an opportunity to respond to the word now, and if there's any way that we could pray with you or encourage you, we would love to do that. I'll be right here on the front row, available to meet with you, talk with you. Uh, if the Lord would lead you to join to this congregation and committed membership or to follow the Lord in baptism, or if you'd like to know more about Jesus, we'd love to uh, speak of that with you. Would you stand please to your feet as we sing and we'll respond to the word now.